Section 7 of Essays and Reviews by Charles Hodge. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Beeman on the Atonement, Part 1. Footnote. Published in 1845 in review of a pamphlet entitled Christ, the Only Sacrifice, or the Atonement in its Relations to God and Man, by Nathan S. S. Beeman, D.D., pastor of the First Presbyterian Church, Troy, New York, Princeton Review. End footnote. The doctrine of which this little book treats has always been regarded as the cardinal doctrine of the gospel. It was the burden of apostolical preaching, the rock of offence to Jews and Greeks, the cornerstone of that temple in which God dwells by his Spirit. The cross is the symbol of Christianity, that in which every believer glories as the only ground of his confidence toward God. The rejection of this doctrine, therefore, has always been regarded, and is, in fact, a rejection of the gospel. It is the repudiation of the way of salvation revealed by God, and the adoption of some method not only different but irreconcilable. Whatever, therefore, affects the integrity of this doctrine affects the whole system of religion. It lies in such immediate contact with the source of all spiritual life that the very nature of religion depends on the manner in which it is apprehended. Though all moral and religious truths are in their nature sources of power, and never fail to influence more or less the character of those who embrace them, yet some truths are more powerful and hence more important than others. We may speculate with comparative impunity on the nature of angels, on the origin of evil, on the purposes of God, on his relation to the world, and even on the grounds and nature of human responsibility. But when we come to the question, how am I to gain access to God, how can I secure the pardon of my sins and acceptance with Him? What is the true ground of hope, and what must I do to place myself on that ground, so as to secure the assurance of God's love, peace of conscience, and joy in the Holy Ghost? Then the less we speculate, the better. The nearer we keep to the simple, authoritative statements of God's Word, the firmer will be our faith, the more full and free our access to God, and the more harmonious and healthful our whole religious experience. Such is the informing influence of such experience, when it is genuine, that is, when really guided by the Spirit and conformed to the revelation of God, that it affects a far nearer coincidence of views in all the children of God than the multiplicity of sects and conflicting systems of theology would lead us to imagine. The mass of true Christians in all denominations get their religion directly from the Bible, and are but little affected by the peculiarities of their creeds. And even among those who make theology a study, there is often one form of doctrine for speculation, and another, simpler and truer, for the closet. Metaphysical distinctions are forgot in prayer, or under the pressure of real conviction of sin and need of pardon and of divine assistance. Hence it is that the devotional writings of Christians agree far nearer than their creeds. It may be taken for granted that the mode of stating divine truth, which is most in accordance with the devotional language of true Christians, which best expresses those views which the soul takes when it appropriates the doctrines of the gospel for its own spiritual emergencies, is the truest and the best. How then does the believer regard the person and work of Christ in his own exercises of faith, gratitude, or love? What is the language in which those exercises are expressed? If we look to the devotional writings of the church, in all ages and countries, and of all sects and names, we shall get one clear, consistent answer. What David wrote three thousand years ago expresses with precision the emotions of God's people now. 
the hymns of the early Christians, of the Lutherans, the Reformed, of Moravians, of British and American Christians, all express the common consciousness of God's people. They all echo the words and accents in which the truth came clothed from the mouth of God, and in which, in spite of the obstructions of theological theories, it finds its way to every believing heart. Now, one thing is very plain. Dr. Beeman's theory of the atonement never could be learnt from the devotional language of the Church. Ours can. Everything we believe on the subject is inwrought, not only in the language of the Bible, but in the language of God's people. Whether they pray or praise, whether they mourn or rejoice, we have therefore the heart of the Church on our side, at least. It lies in the very surface of the Scriptures, one, that all men are sinners, Two, that sin, for its own sake, and not merely to prevent others from sinning, deserves punishment. Three, that God is just, that is, disposed from the very excellence of his nature, to treat his creatures as they deserve, to manifest his favour to the good, and his disapprobation towards the wicked. Four, that to propitiate God, to satisfy his righteous justice, the Son of God assumed our nature, was made under the law, fulfilled all righteousness, bore our sins, the chastisement or punishment of which was laid on him. Five, that by his righteousness those that believe are constituted righteous, that his merit is so given, reckoned or imputed to them, that they are regarded and treated as righteous in the sight of God. These truths, which lie on the surface of the Scriptures, are wrought into the very soul of the Church, and are, in fact, its life. Yet every one of them, except the first, Dr. Beeman either expressly or virtually denies. He denies that sin, for its own sake, deserves punishment. He everywhere represents the prevention of crime as the great end to be answered by punishment, even in the government of God. If that end can be otherwise answered, then justice is satisfied the necessity and propriety of punishment ceases. This is the fundamental principle of the whole system, and is avowed or implied upon almost every page. His argument in proof that repentance is not a sufficient ground for pardon is that it has no tendency to prevent crime in others. In human governments, he says, punishment is designed to prevent a repetition of crime by the criminal and to prevent its commission by others. The former of these ends might be answered by repentance, but not the latter. So, in the case of the divine government, repentance on the part of the sinner might, quote, so far as his moral feelings are concerned, end quote, render it consistent in God to forgive, but then, where is the honour of the law? Where is the good of the universe? Page 57. The design of penalty is to operate as a powerful motive to obedience. Page 127. There is, he says, the same necessity for atonement as for the penalty of the moral law, and that necessity he uniformly represents as a necessity, quote, to secure the order and prosperity of the universe, end quote, page 128. It is, of course, admitted that the prevention of crime is one of the effects and consequently one of the ends of punishment. But to say that it is the end that it is so the ground of its infliction that all necessity for punishment ceases when that end is answered, is to deny the very nature of sin. The ideas of right and wrong are simple ideas, derived immediately from our moral nature, and it is included in those ideas that what is right deserves approbation, and what is wrong deserves disapprobation for their own sake, and entirely irrespective of the consequences which are to flow from the expression of this moral judgment concerning them. When a man sins, he feels that he deserves to suffer, or, as the Apostle expresses it, that he is worthy of death. But what is this feeling? Is it that he ought to be punished to prevent others from sinning? 
So far from this being the whole of the feeling, it is no part of it. If the sinner were alone in the universe, if there was no possibility of others being affected by his example or by his impunity, the sense of ill-desert would exist in all its force. For sin is that which in itself and for itself, irrespective of all consequences, deserves ill. This is the very nature of it, and to deny this is to deny that there is really any such thing as sin. There may be acts which tend to promote happiness, and others which tend to destroy it, but there is no morality in such tendency merely, any more than there is in health and sickness. The nature of moral acts may be evinced by their tendency, but that tendency does not constitute their nature. To love God, to reverence excellence, to forgive injuries, all tend to promote happiness, but no man who has a moral sense in exercise can say that they are right only because of such tendency. They are right because they are right, in virtue of their own inherent nature, and the opposite dispositions or acts are in their nature evil, irrespective of their tendency to produce misery. The theory that the end of punishment, even in the divine government, is to prevent crime, is only one expression of the more general theory that happiness is the end of creation, and that all holiness is resolvable into benevolence. This theory is a product of the mere understanding and does violence to the instinctive moral judgment of men. We know that holiness is something more than a means, that to be happy is not the end and reason for being holy, that enjoyment is not the highest end of being. Our moral nature cannot be thus obliterated, and right and wrong made matters of profit and loss. The command not to do evil that good may come would on this theory be a contradiction, since that ceases to be evil which produces good. All virtue is thus resolved into expediency, and the doctrine that the end sanctifies the means becomes the fundamental principle of virtue. It is strange that even when the moral feelings are in abeyance, and men are engaged in spinning from the intellect a theory that will reduce to unity the conflicting facts of the moral world, they could adopt a view which reduces all intelligent beings to mere recipients of happiness, and degrades the higher attributes of their nature into mere instruments of enjoyment. A theory which meets its refutation in every moral emotion, and which has proved itself false by its practical effects. We may safely appeal to the convictions in every man's breast against this whole theory and against the doctrine that sin is punished and deserves punishment only as a warning to others. No man, when humbled under the sense of his guilt in the sight of God, can resist the conviction of the inherent ill-desert of sin. He feels that it would be right that he should be made to suffer, nay, that rectitude, justice or moral excellence demands his suffering, and the hardest thing for the sinner to believe is often that it can be consistent with the moral excellence of God to grant him forgiveness. Into this feeling the idea of counteracting the progress of sin or promoting the good of the universe does not in any measure enter. The feeling would be the same though there was no universe. It is ill-desert and not the general good which every man feels in his own case is the ground of his just liability to punishment and without this feeling there can be no conviction of sin. We may also appeal against this metaphysical theory to the universal consciousness of men. Though it is admitted that governmental reasons properly enter into the considerations which determine the nature and measure of punishment, yet it is the universal and intuitive judgment of men that the criminal could not be rightly punished merely for the public good if he did not deserve to be punished irrespective of that good. His suffering benefits the public because it is deserved. 
it is not deserved because it benefits the public. That this is the universal judgment of men is proved by every exhibition of their feelings on this subject. When any atrocious crime is committed, the public indignation is aroused, and when the nature of that indignation is examined, it becomes manifest that it arises from a sense of the inherent ill-desert of the crime, that is, a sense of justice, and not a regard to the good of society which produces the demand for punishment. To allow such a criminal to escape with impunity is felt to be an outrage against justice and not against benevolence. If the public good was the grand end of punishment, then if punishment of the innocent would promote that most effectually, the innocent should suffer instead of the guilty. Consequently, if murders would be most restrained by the execution of the wives and children of the assassins, it would be right and obligatory to execute them, and not the perpetrators of the crime. If this would shock every man, let him ask himself why. What is the reason that the execution of an innocent woman for the public good would be an atrocity when the execution of the guilty husband is regarded as a duty? It is simply because the guilty deserve punishment irrespective of the good of society. And if so, then the public good is not the ground of punishment in the government of God, but the inherent ill-desert of sin. Men in all ages have evinced this deep-seated sense of justice. Every sacrifice ever offered to God to propitiate his favour was an expression of the conviction that the sin, for its own sake, deserved punishment. To tell a man who brought his victim to the altar that the real philosophy of his conduct was to express a desire for his own reformation, or for the good of society, would be a mockery. Such an idea never entered any human heart, when in the presence of God seeking his forgiveness. It is not pretended that this theory is taught in the Bible. It purports to be a philosophy. The Bible contradicts it on every page, because every page contains some expression of genuine human feeling, of the conviction of the real difference between right and wrong, of a true sense of sin, or of the great truth that our responsibility is to God and not to the universe. The doctrine, therefore, that sin is punished merely to preserve the order and prosperity of the universe is an utterly false and revolting theory, inconsistent with the intuitive moral judgments of men, subversive of all moral distinctions, irreconcilable with the experience of every man when really convinced of sin, and contradicted by everything the Bible teaches on the subject. Dr. Beeman again denies, and it is essential to his system that he should deny, the justice of God. He admits that God has a disposition to promote the welfare of his creatures, and so to order his moral government as to make it produce the greatest amount of happiness. This, however, is benevolence and not justice. The two sentiments are perfectly distinct. This our own consciousness teaches. We know that pity is not reverence, that gratitude is not compassion, and we know just as well that justice is not benevolence. The two are perfectly harmonious, and are but different expressions of moral excellence. The judge of all the earth must do right. It is right to promote happiness, and it is right to punish sin. But to refer the punishment of sin to the desire to promote happiness is to attribute but one form of moral excellence to God and make his excellence less comprehensive than our own. Dr. Beeman speaks of commutative, distributive, and general justice. The former has relation only to the regulation of property and has nothing to do with this subject. Distributive justice consists in the distribution of rewards and punishments according to merit or demerit. General justice, he says, embraces the general principles of virtue or benevolence by which God governs the universe. The second kind, he correctly says, is justice in the common and appropriate sense of the word. Page 131. 
When we say that he denies the justice of God, we mean that he denies that justice in its common and appropriate sense is an essential attribute of the divine nature. There is nothing in his nature that leads to the punishment of sin, but benevolence or a regard to the happiness of the universe. If that is secured, sin and all sin may go unpunished forever. This, we say, is a denial of divine justice. It is a principle of our nature and a command of God that we should regard him as absolutely perfect, that every moral excellence which we find in ourselves should refer to him in an infinite degree. Why do we believe that God is merciful but because he has so made us that we approve of mercy and because he has in his word declared himself to be full of compassion? Our moral nature is as much a revelation of God's perfections as the heavens are of his wisdom and power. If, therefore, he has implanted in us a sentiment of justice, distinct from that of benevolence, we are constrained by the very constitution of our nature to refer that perfection to God. All men, in fact, do it. It enters into the sense of responsibility, into the nature of remorse, and into that fearful looking for of judgment which manifests themselves in every human breast. Men know that God is just, for they in their measure are just, and they instinctively fear the punishment of their sins. To be told that God is only benevolent, that he punishes only when the happiness of his government requires it, is to destroy our whole allegiance to God, and to do violence to the constitution of our nature. This is a doctrine that can only be held as a theory. It is in conflict with the most intimate moral convictions of men. This, as already remarked, is evinced by the sacrificial rites of all ages and nations, which derive their whole character and import from the assumption that God is just. If justice is merged into benevolence, they cease to have any significance as propitiatory offerings. If then, distributive justice, justice in its common and appropriate sense, is by the common consciousness of men declared to be a virtue, it is thereby revealed to belong to God, and he can no more cease to be just than he can cease to be benevolent or holy. This is only saying that if moral excellence leads us to judge that sin in itself deserves punishment, then the infinite moral excellence of God cannot but lead him to treat it as it deserves. Again, it is included in our conception of God as absolutely independent and self-sufficient that the reasons of his acts should be in himself. He is absolutely perfect, he acts with undeviating rectitude, and by so acting he promotes the highest good of his creatures. But the good of his creatures is not the end of his actions, for of him and through him and to him are all things. It is to subordinate God to the creature to make the creature the end of his actions. He rewards one man and punishes another, not because he will thus make others happy, but because it is right, and by doing right, the greatest good to others is the result. This is the view which both reason and scripture present of God as infinite and self-sufficient, who is the beginning and the end of all things. It is hence plain how the justice of God necessarily flows from his holiness. He is so holy that he delights in all that is good and hates all that is evil, and if he acts agreeably to his nature, he constantly manifests this love of excellence and hatred of sin. But what is reward and punishment but the manifestation of the approbation or disapprobation of God? If holiness is communion with him, sin is alienation from him. If his favour goes out towards the one, his displeasure goes out towards the other. If the one is attracted, the other is repelled. The attributes of God are not so many distinct qualities, but one perfection of excellence, diversified in our conceptions by the diversity of the objects towards which it is manifested. 
The justice of God is therefore nothing but the holiness of God in relation to sin. So long as he is holy, he must be just, he must repel sin, which is the highest idea we can form of punishment. To say, then, that God punishes only for governmental reasons is to destroy our very conception of his nature. That distributive justice is an essential attribute of God is therefore revealed to us in the very constitution of our nature in which we find a sense of justice which is no more a form of benevolence than it is of reverence. It is revealed in all the operations of conscience, in the common consciousness of men as expressed in all their prayers, confessions and sacrificial rites. It is revealed in the scriptures in every possible way, in all they teach of the nature of God, of his holiness, of his hatred of sin, of his determination to punish it, in the institution of sacrifices, and in the law. If the precepts of the law are an expression of the divine perfection, so is the penalty. If the one declares what it is right for God to require, the other declares what it is right for him to inflict. If God does not command us to love him merely to make his dominions happy, neither does he punish merely for the public good. The law is a revelation of what is right, and God will require and do right for his own sake, and not for another and a lower end. God then is just, and Dr. Beeman and his theory, by denying that there is any such attribute in God as justice, distinct from benevolence, to equal violence to conscience, reason, and the Bible. Dr. Beeman again denies that Christ made a true and proper satisfaction to divine justice, and thus departs from the common faith of Christendom, and seriously vitiates the whole doctrine of redemption. It is well known that, at the time of the Reformation, there was no controversy between Protestants and Romanists, either as to the necessity or nature of the atonement. All classes of Protestants and the Church of Rome itself united in teaching, one, that the Son of God, having assumed our nature, obeyed and suffered in our stead, thereby making a true, proper, and complete satisfaction for our sins. And two, that his righteousness was so given or imputed unto us as to constitute us righteous in the sight of God. The Romanists even reproached Protestants for not coming up to their doctrine on this subject, insisting that the satisfaction of Christ was not only full and equivalent, but superabundant. Pretium, says the Roman Catechism, section 1, 5 and 15, Quod Christus non nobis per solvit depitis nostris non par solum et equale fuit verum ea longe superavit. It is one of the standing heads of theology in the Romish systems. Satisfactio Christi fuit de rigore justitiae, which they prove, and answer the common Sicinian objections, viz. that such a satisfaction destroys the grace of salvation, that it is impossible that the temporal sufferings of Christ should have such efficacy, etc. As to their views of the second point above mentioned, it is enough to quote the following passage from Tariton, Volume 2, page 709. It is not questioned, he says, whether the righteousness and merit of Christ are imputed to us. For this the papists dare not deny. The Council of Trent, session 6, c. 8, says, Christ, by his most holy passion on the cross, merited justification for us, and satisfied God the Father in our behalf, and no one can be righteous to whom the merits of the passion of our Lord Jesus Christ are not communicated. Hence Vasquez, in... L2, Q114, Disp 222, Chapter 1, says, 
We concede that not only what is within us, as sin, faith, righteousness, may be imputed to us, but also what is without us, as the merits and obedience of Christ, because not only what is within, but also what is without, on account of which something is given us, is said to belong to us, ad aliquem effectum, as though they were really our own. Bellamin, lib. 2, de justif, Chapter 7 acknowledges the same thing when he says, If Protestants meant only that the merits of Christ are imputed to us because God gives them to us, so that we can present them to God for our sins, he having assumed the burden of making satisfaction for us and of reconciling us to the Father, the doctrine would be true. This is in fact precisely what we do mean. For, when he adds, we hold that the righteousness of Christ is so imputed to us as by it we become formally or inherently just. He asserts what is gratuitous and false, on account of his own perverse and preposterous theory of moral justification. Footnote. It is characteristic of the Church of Rome that while she holds the truth, she contrives to make it of no effect by her traditions. Thus, while she teaches that the merit of Christ is the ground of our justification, she makes those merits accessible only through her ministrations and confounds justification and sanctification. And while she holds the truth as to the nature of Christ's satisfaction, she chooses to confine it to original and mortal sins, that she may make room for her own doctrine of satisfaction by good works and penances. The infinite value of the Saviour's merit she perverts as a source whence to derive the power to grant indulgences, etc. End footnote. The Lutheran Church held the strictest form of doctrine as to the nature of Christ's satisfaction and as to justification. That Church teaches that the sufferings of Christ were strictly penal, that his obedience and death made a full and proper satisfaction to the law and justice of God, and are imputed to believers as the sole ground of their justification. We cannot swell our article with numerous citations in proof of a well-known fact. In the Apology for the Augsburg Confession, page 93, it is said, Christus quia sine peccato supit poenam peccati et victima pro nobis factus est, sustulit iluit jus legis, ne accuset, ne damnet hosqui credunt in ipsum, quia ipse est propitiatio prois, propter quam justi reputantur. In the form of concord it is said, Justitia illa, quae coram Deo fide, aut credentibus et mera gratia imputatur, Est obedientia passio et resurrectio Christi, quibus ille legi nostra causa satisfecit et peccata nostra expiabit. Page 684. Again, page 696. Humana natura sola sine divinitate eterno omnipotenti Deo neque passione prototios mundi peccatis satisfacere valuiset, divinitas vero sola sine humanitate inter Deum et nos mediatoris partes implere non potuiset, cum autem, obedientia ille Christi non sit unius dun taxat nature, sed totius persone, Ideo ea est perfectissima pro humano genere satisfactio et expiatio, 
qua eterne et immutabili justitia divine, satis est factum. It will not be necessary to prove that the Reformed churches held precisely the same doctrine. There was no controversy between them and the Lutherans, either as to the nature of the satisfaction of Christ or as to justification. They differed only as to the design of Christ's death, whether it had respect equally to all men or had a special reference to his own people, a point which we hope to have room to discuss in the sequel of this article. We are now concerned only about the nature of the atonement. Breit Schneider states, in a few words, the common doctrine on this subject of the two great divisions of the Protestant world. After saying that God, according to the doctrine, is immutably just, and therefore must punish sin, and yet, being immutably benevolent, he determined to provide redemption, he proceeds, quote, For this it was necessary, one, that some one in the place of men should fulfill the law which they ought to have kept, and two, that some one should endure the punishment, strafen, which they had incurred. This no mere man could do, for no man, since all are subject to original sin, could perfectly keep the law, and every man must suffer for his own sin. Neither could any divine person accomplish the task, since he could not sustain suffering and punishment. He alone, who is at once God and man, with a human nature free from sin, could accomplish the work. End quote. This righteousness, he adds, God imputes to men as though they had wrought it out themselves. Against this doctrine of satisfaction to the divine justice, the Sicinians were the first to object. Footnote. In the Rakovian Catechism, it is asked, Did Christ die that he might, properly speaking, merit our salvation, or in like manner, properly speaking, discharge the debt due for our sins? Answer. Although Christians generally now hold that opinion, yet the sentiment is false, erroneous, and exceedingly pernicious. End footnote. Under the pressure of their objections, the remonstrance in Holland gave way, and Grotius, in his work De Satisfactione Christi, though defending in the main the Catholic or common doctrine, introduced the principle that the satisfaction of Christ was rendered to the governmental justice of God. Very far below the doctrine of Grotius, in many important respects, is the theory of Dr. Beeman. In some cases he falls even below Sosinus. Quote, God, as the supreme governor, he says, must so conduct all his movements, whether of justice or mercy, as to leave on the minds of dependent creatures a deep and just impression that the penalty of the law will be executed and that the sinner must perish. To fix this impression indelibly in the breast of the sinner is the object of the atonement. End quote. Page 41. Footnote. Sosinus taught that the atonement was designed, one, to confirm the new covenant and all its promises, especially those of the pardon of sin and of eternal life, two, to assure us of the love of God, three, to induce us to embrace the gospel, four, to encourage us by his example to trust in God, five, to abrogate the old dispensation, etc. In footnote. This, however, is probably a lapsus such an one, however, as few men could make. He generally includes other intelligent creatures. Still, with him, the atonement is a mere method of instruction, a means to exhibit a certain truth for the moral restraint or improvement of those to whom it is made known. The gratuitous forgiveness of sin, it is said, would tend to produce the impression that God was indifferent to his law, and that sin might be committed with impunity. To counteract that impression, to teach or declare that sin was, in the sight of God, an evil, and would be punished, and thus to open a way to exercise mercy, without weakening the motive to obedience, is the design of the death of Christ. Justice, in its 
common appropriate sense, he says, was not satisfied by the atonement of Jesus Christ. Page 131. The law, or justice, that is, distributive justice, as expressed in the law, has received no satisfaction at all. Page 133. So far as the atonement secured the government of God from the evils of gratuitous forgiveness, it was a satisfaction to his benevolence, but not to justice in any other sense. Page 182. It was designed to teach a certain truth. It is a symbolical and substantive expression of God's regard to the moral law. Page 35. It furnishes an expression of his regard for the moral law and evinces his determination to punish sin. Page 91. To fix indelibly this impression on the heart of the sinner is the object of the atonement. Page 42. Our first remark on this subject, after showing, as we think we have done, that the whole basis of this theory is false, is that it is destitute of any semblance of support from Scripture. It hardly purports to be anything more than a hypothesis on which to reconcile what the Bible teaches with our views of moral government. It is a device to make the atonement rational, to explain away the mystery which hangs over it and makes the whole august transaction perfectly intelligible. Dr. Beeman says that the doctrine of the atonement enters into the very texture of revelation, warp and woof. It is, he says, the vital principle in the very heart of the gospel. Page 62. Surely then we have a right to have it treated as a purely biblical question, as he affirms it to be. Yet, in his chapter on the nature of the atonement, so far as we can find, he refers to but one solitary text in the whole Bible. It is a theory woven warp and woof out of the understanding, not even out of the conscience. The solitary passage which Dr. Beeman cites as teaching his doctrine is Romans 3.25, where it is said that God set forth Christ as a propitiation for our sins, to declare his righteousness. The object of the atonement, he says, quote, is here stated in explicit terms. It was required and made in order to open a consistent way for the publication of pardon or for the exercise of grace to sinners. Its purpose was to declare the righteousness or moral rectitude and perfection of God in dispensing, in this instance, with the literal execution of the penalty of the law and in bestowing eternal life upon those who deserved to die. End quote. Page 124. He afterwards, page 132, says, The words just and righteousness, as here used, have no direct reference to law, but express those principles of virtue and benevolence by which we are bound to regulate our conduct, and by which God governs the universe. Then, of course, the passage might be rendered, Christ was sent forth as a propitiation to declare the benevolence of God, that he might be benevolent even in remitting the sins of those that believe an interpretation which needs no refutation. The first remark, then, to be made on this passage is that it teaches the very reverse of what it is cited to prove. Dr. Beeman himself says that, in their common and appropriate sense, the words just and justice have reference to law and express what he calls distributive justice. Then, if the language of the apostle is to be taken in a common and appropriate sense, it teaches that the propitiation of Christ was designed as an exhibition of justice in its proper sense, in order to make it apparent that God was just even in remitting sin, that the demands of justice had not been sacrificed, but on the contrary fully satisfied. It is only by taking the words in a sense that is inappropriate and unusual that any other doctrine can be got out of the passage. Besides, Dr. Beeman's interpretation is not only in direct opposition to the common meaning of the words, but to the necessary sense of the context. 
Satisfaction to justice is the formal idea of a propitiation, and saying that Christ was a propitiation is only saying, in other words, that our sins were laid on him, that he bore the chastisement or punishment of our sins in order that God might be just in justifying those that believe. Again, this interpretation is agreeable to the sense in which the words just, righteous, righteousness are familiarly used by the apostle. Is God unrighteous, he asks, who taketh vengeance? Romans 3.5. He denounces the divine judgment by saying God will cut short the work in righteousness. Romans 9.28. See also 2 Thessalonians 1.5 and 6. The obvious sense then of the passage in Romans 3.25 is the opposite to that which Dr. Beeman gives it. Footnote. We see ourselves obliged, says Tollock, to admit in this place the idea of distributive justice, vergeltende Gerechtigkeit. He afterwards says that the loss of that idea in theology has occasioned unspeakable evil, and that the doctrine of atonement must remain sealed up until it is acknowledged. See his Römerbrief, edition 1842. He refers with approbation to Usteri's exposition of this passage in his Paulinischer Lehrbegriff. On turning to that author, we find, he says, his object is to prove that the representation contained in Romans 3, 24 and 25, viz. that God, to declare his righteousness laid on Christ the punishment of the sins of men, is the doctrine of Paul. And he accordingly goes on to prove it, particularly from Romans 8, 3. Usteri is one of those writers who do not feel called upon to believe what the scripture teaches, though they make it a point of honour to state its meaning fairly. End footnote. But if we admit that the passage in question does teach that the atonement was designed to set forth God's regard for the good of the universe, what then? Would it establish Dr. Beeman's theory? Far from it. It is one of the most common fallacies of theological writers to seize upon some one passage, and shutting their eyes to all others, assume that it teaches the whole truth on a given subject. The death of Christ was designed to answer manifold ends, more perhaps than it has yet entered into the heart of man to imagine. It would be the extreme of folly to take one of those ends and infer that its attainment was its whole design, or let us into the full knowledge of its nature. Is it not said a hundred times that the death of Christ was designed to exhibit the love of God? Does this prove that it does not display his righteousness? It is said to declare his wisdom, does that prove it does not display his love? It was designed to bring us unto God, but does that prove it was not also an atonement? It is not by taking any one view or any one text that we can arrive at the truth. We must have a theory which will embrace all the facts, a doctrine which includes all the revelations God has made on this subject. The objection to Dr. Beeman's view of the design of Christ's death is not that it is false, but that it is defective. It states only a part and a subordinate part of the truth. The atonement is an exhibition of God's purpose to maintain his law and to inflict its penalty, and thus to operate as a restraint and a motive on all intelligent beings, because it involves the execution of that penalty. It is this that gives it all its power. It would be no exhibition of justice if it were not an exercise of justice. It would not teach that the penalty of law must be inflicted unless it was inflicted. We hold all the little truth there is in Dr. Beeman's doctrine, but we hold unspeakably more. End of section 7.